killing. Preparations are underway for the Derek Chauvin trial. Our exclusive interview with the organization funding his defense. We feel strong in the case. Plus, the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives calling for reform and new legislation. You have to acknowledge the problem. The accused killer of rapper Nipsey Hussle is asking for a bail reduction. Is Eric Holder a danger to the community? And the billion dollars in settlements one university will pay out to sex assault victims of a former campus gynecologist. Law and Crime Daily covering court cases from coast to coast. Welcome everyone to Law and Crime Daily. I'm Brian Bruckmeyer along with Terry Austin and Anjanette Levy. We begin with team coverage of the Derek Chauvin trial. Anjanette leads us off with an exclusive interview with the man who heads the organization that's paying for Chauvin's defense. And Brian, the Minnesota Police and Peace Officers Association lobbies for pro-law enforcement legislation in the state. And the group also has a legal defense fund for its members. I spoke with the executive director about a number of issues, including Minnesota's attorney general and what he believes are the strengths in Chauvin's case. This is such a, a very important case, and the world is watching. Brian Peters has led the MPPOA since 2019. Nothing could have prepared Peters for what happened on May 25, 2020, when a video of George Floyd's arrest, recorded by a teenage girl, went viral. You asked me earlier what I thought of the video when I first saw it. It was hard. It was hard to watch. But Peters says his opinion on that video started to change after he watched the police body camera video that showed the beginning of the encounter with George Floyd. Evidence uh, wasn't released right away. And when I started looking at the evidence, also being able to watch all of the body camera video, um, things started to change. And being experienced in law enforcement, not everything is what it, what it seems to be just from one aspect of a video. Peters won't comment on the officer's actions that day, but he believes the body camera video, the medical examiner's report, and the officer's training all help their cases. He questions why Attorney General Keith Ellison didn't want the body camera released in the beginning. I sat on a working group called uh, Deadly, how to, how to Reduce Deadly Force Encounters, and this was led by our, our Attorney General and our Commissioner of Public Safety. We met for nine months, and this is pre-George Floyd. Our Attorney General spoke of needing transparency in these cases, meaning release of body camera video as soon as possible, making sure that these investigations don't take years, you know, to go from investigation to conclusion at court. Peters also questions why Ellison wanted to keep cameras out of the courtroom. We want to make sure that the facts are the facts and people can make up their own decision themselves instead of relying on whether it's a media report or a statement from the attorney general. People are going to be able, be able to see the facts firsthand. The stakes couldn't be higher and the meaning of justice couldn't be more different for the Floyd family and Derek Chauvin. Only a murder conviction will mean justice for the Floyds. For Derek Chauvin, it's an acquittal. Lawyer Eric Nelson is defending Chauvin. He's one of 12 lawyers the MPPOA has vetted to defend officers. Three other lawyers are defending Thomas Lane, Alexander King, and Tu Tao. Even though each attorney representing the individual has different um, parts within the case, uh, it does all come together that, of course, all four attorneys are working very hard with each other. We feel strong in the case. I think if the attorney general's office felt the 
same. I don't understand why they need as many attorneys on this case as, as they do. So do you think that there is any room for reform within the Minneapolis Police Department? Absolutely. I think there's, there's room for reform uh, across the United States. But as I stated earlier, there's also a lot of room for reform at our legislative uh, bodies, whether it's at the state or federal level. Uh, really working on some of these uh, decade-long problems that nobody seems to be able to fix. And Peter said those problems include drug abuse, inequities in education, and poverty. He didn't want to comment on specific aspects of the case right now because of Judge Cahill's warnings, and you saw how upset he got over the last week or so with the city of Minneapolis and the comments city officials have been making there. Brian? Thanks, Angela. Many in law enforcement disagree with Chauvin's actions that day. Terry Austin has more on the head of a national organization who is looking to see accountability. Brian, I spoke with Linda Williams, the president of the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. She says the incident inspired her organization to call for legislation mandating intervention by officers when they see another officer using excessive force. 30 years of being a special agent with the United States Secret Service, I, and I was very good, never put anybody on the ground, never laid on anybody's neck. Even when there was an arrest that was effective, it was done properly and humane. Because law enforcement is that institution society that has been given that ultimate, that ultimate authority to use death as an you know, as a final uh, you know, resolution. It does not come to that. We have to be accountable for the training. And those people that lack or do not do that, they have to be held accountable. And I know it's simple, but it's just a mom and just to hear a man cry for his mother. But the fact is, you had them under control, so why are you still, at that point, utilizing excessive force? We have to care. Yeah. Everybody have to reimagine law enforcement. We have to public safety is more than a gun and a bag. It's us taking pride and, uh, you know, reinvesting into our community. And that's a holistic approach. Thanks, Terry. Let's bring in criminal defense attorney Bernardo Violona on this as well. Bernardo, what did you make of the comments there in Terry's interview where you have a, I mean, how do you get better experience in special forces of the United States of America in talking about when force should or shouldn't be used and when it's accepted? This conversation is a conversation that we have been having for years. We have been having this same conversation for over 10, 20, 30 years, and it still has remained the same. Changes only come little by little. At some point, come on, you're going to keep on having situations like that of George Floyd who died. These are situations that we hear all around the country. At some point, this has to stop. How do we get there? Is it by suing people and getting money by the city? Is it by taking away qualified immunity? Is it by the criminal cases? Something has to give. Agreed. Terry, what did you make of Brian Peters Measure's response on the case of, of Derek Chauvin? Well, you know, Peters is probably being very careful for a couple of reasons. First, he knows that the world is watching, and he probably wants to make sure that he's being fair and that he's being impartial, even though obviously he has one point of view. And second, he knows Judge Cahill has already cautioned all the parties to limit their comments, and even as it applies to the press, not just to these parties. So I think he's being very careful, and he's being neutral, if he can be. So, Angela, Brian Peters, Seems to be pretty critical of the Attorney General, Keith Ellison. I think there's no love 
between the two of them? Yeah, I mean, it kind of sounds like that, but in really having, we had a really long conversation, Brian, about 35 or 40 minutes, and he said he simply just has a lot of questions for the Attorney General. As you heard him say, they worked on that panel together to reduce use of force incidents. They had worked on some possible reforms that they recommended to the state legislature up there in Minnesota. And then the Floyd case happened and everything kind of fell apart. So he said even today he would still sit down and talk with the attorney general. He just has a lot of questions regarding his handling of this particular case. Of course, the concept of reform will be hanging over this trial as it begins uh, in the coming days. Still ahead on Law and Crime Daily, the suspect accused of killing Grammy-winner rapper Nipsey Hussle wants out of jail. But first, the shocking evidence the jury in the George Floyd case is expected to hear. Did Derek Chauvin order a woman to be hogtied who wasn't resisting arrest? In one previous arrest, Chauvin received a life-saving award for placing a handcuffed man on his side, an action which hospital staff later told him saved the man's life. This week, Judge Peter Cahill ruled that the incident was important because it showed Chauvin's knowledge reasonable force in a similar incident to what George Floyd experienced in May 2020. The jury will also hear about another arrest in 2017 when Chauvin placed a woman in a hog tie, even though she was not resisting arrest. As evidence is presented in court next week, family and friends of George Floyd are hoping for a guilty verdict. I hope that the police officer do some jail time. Because um, when you look at the video, everybody telling him he can't breathe. He, you know, he's saying he need help. The officer continued to put his knee in his neck. Uh, I feel the time he told him he was claustrophobia and he couldn't breathe, they should have set him on the curb, called for paramedics. Now, George Floyd's friend tells me that uh, he thinks the racial makeup of the jury, which includes six people of color, is fair, and he says that he hopes justice is served. Brian. Thanks, Kim. Here to break down the judge's ruling and the makeup of the jury is criminal defense attorney Bernardo Villalona and Terry Austin. Terry, do you agree with Floyd's friend? Does the racial makeup of the jury appear fair to you? I do agree. I think that it's not only racially diverse, but you have nine women, six men, and the fact that you do have six of the 15 jurors who are from diverse backgrounds. I also think it's important that they have different professions. So you have someone who is an auditor, you have someone who is a chemist, you have a single mom. Those types of perspectives will be important when they're doing deliberations. You're going to want to hear everyone's opinion. So I think that diversity is excellent. And I think they did a good job, frankly, of picking people who will at least try to be fair. Bernardo, what do you make of the judge's ruling to include prior acts by Chauvin? So I'm not surprised at the judge's ruling. Remember that the prosecution in this case actually was seeking to put in eight of Chauvin's prior bad acts into evidence. 
And what the judge decided, which was a fair decision, that only two of those acts are going to be allowed in front of the jury because those two acts go to knowledge and intent. Specifically the act where a man was tasered and he was rolled to his side because when he was in the hospital, the people at the hospital had stated, had he still been facing the ground for any much longer that he would have died. So that goes to show you knowledge on the part of Chauvin. He was aware that having Floyd down, face down, with his knee on his neck could cause death. I mean, it's called a recovery position for a reason. Of course, if this testimony comes in, it's going to be very damaging to the defense. Be sure to tune in to the Law and Crime Network for gavel-to-gavel coverage of the Derek Chauvin murder trial and the death of George Floyd. For more on what's going on at the Law and Crime Network, let's hand it over to Jesse Weber, host of the show, Prime Crime. Yeah, hey there, Brian. Tonight we discuss Sean Great. This is a serial killer who lured women in and then murdered them. We're going to start with the harrowing 911 call of a woman who was able to escape and then dive into the twisted confessions of Great that are really something else.
easily remanded him. So I'm hoping that the bail stays at a very high mark. As we know, strength of the case is a factor that most courts typically consider for bail. But is there a strong argument to have bond reduced here? There's no reason to reduce the bond in this case. There has not been a change in circumstances. He is awaiting trial. So it's not like any of the counts have been dismissed. So when it comes to California and setting bail, there's a computation system that they use. It's one million off the top just if you're facing life if you were to convicted, be convicted of the sentence. It's another additional $1 million if you are the shooter. It's another $1 million if you have, depending on your prior record. So it is the best computation that you use, even though bail is only supposed to be to assure the return to court. But also you got to think about public safety. Yeah, it is, a, of course, a factor that they put in. And thank you for that, Bernardo, for showing us how that calculus breaks down. I would agree. With no change of circumstance, I don't see his bail reducing unless something in his case drastically change but of course we keep eyes on that case thank you both when we come back how did the alleged boulder store shooter obtain the weapon that left 10 dead the new facts we are learning about ahmad alisa
Absolutely. Hundreds of victims, as you said earlier, most the most uh, recent settlements, because I said there's more than one, women will see payouts from a quarter million dollars to several million. Karen, how do you think uh, that the breakdown of these settlements are working out in favor of these women? Well, you know, I think the large amounts are worth it because the amount of physical and emotional distress that they went through, considering the fact these are students. You know, I taught out at USC after Dr. Tyndale was there, but during the class action. And I heard students talking about the ramifications of what he did when he was at the school. So it might sound like an astronomical figure, but I think it is, as Bernardo says, somewhat of an admission that the university failed to protect these students. When you have your child go off to school, the last thing you think about is the fact that they might be abused by someone at the school. So I think it's the right amount, and I think it's a great thing that the school is settling because they're acknowledging that they don't need to put these women through a trial, which would cause even more emotional distress. I mean, personally, I find it disgusting, especially as an NCAA, or I guess former NCAA uh, college athlete myself, when you go to these schools, you're supposed to be welcomed into a family, you're supposed to be protected by athletic trainers, by coaches, by, by the, the, the university as you go out there and you try to do your best in a sport that you love to represent that school. It's, it's maddening and sickening to hear that uh, young women in college have to go through this. I'm glad they got their civil court case resolved, and I look forward to seeing how the criminal case is resolved as well. Thank you both, and thank you for joining us here at Law and Crime Daily. We'll see you next time as we discuss justice in America. The change in circumstances, he is awaiting trial, so it's not like any of the counts are being dismissed. So when it comes to California and setting bail, there's a computation system that they use. It's one million off the top, just if you're facing life, if you were to convicted, be convicted of the sentence. It's another additional one million dollars if you are the shooter. It's another one million dollars if you have, depending on your prior record. So it is the best computation that you use, even though bail is only supposed to be to assure the return to court. But also you got to think about public safety. Yeah, it is, a, of course, a factor that they put in. And thank you for that, Bernardo, for showing us how that calculus breaks down. I would agree. With no change of circumstance, I don't see his bail reducing unless something in his case drastically changed. But, of course, we keep eyes on that case. Thank you both. When we come back, how did the alleged Boulder store shooter obtain the weapon that left 10 dead? The new facts you're learning about Ahmad Alisa.
University of Southern California will pay out more than a billion dollars to sexual assault victims of a former campus gynecologist. Ex-Dr. George Tyndall worked at the USC Student Health Clinic from 1989 until 2016. That's when allegations he had been abusing students and taking photos of their genitals without their knowledge were made public in an L.A. Times investigation. He has pled not guilty to 29 felony charges and is awaiting trial. Those settlements cover more than 700 plaintiffs. It's the largest sex abuse payout in higher education history. I mean, Bernardo, some of the details here are astounding. $1.1 billion settlement over three multiple settlements. Scandal after scandal. The university officials calling it, quote, the end of a painful and ugly chapter in the history of the university. What are your thoughts on the settlement? So, of course, the amount itself shows you that there was culpability on the side of the college. But I would tell you this. The problem is, is that the college was well aware of this doctor's act since the 90s, and it wasn't until 2016 that they decided to take action against this doctor and have him removed. So for the college to have failed those ladies, I think it's the right settlement. If not, they should actually get more, because the reality is that they will never forget what they went through. Absolutely. Hundreds of victims, as you said earlier, most the most uh, recent settlements, because I said there's more than one, women will see payouts from a quarter million dollars to several million. Karen, how do you think uh, that the breakdown of these settlements are working out in favor of these women? Well, you know, I think the large amounts are worth it because the amount of physical and emotional distress that they went through, considering the fact these are students. You know, I taught out at USC after Dr. Tyndale was there, but during the class action. And I heard students talking about the ramifications of what he did when he was at the school. So it might sound like an astronomical figure, but I think it is, as Bernardo says, somewhat of an admission that the university failed to protect these students. When you have your child go off to school, the last thing you think about is the fact that they might be abused by someone at the school. So I think it's the right amount, and I think it's a great thing that the school is settling because they're acknowledging that they don't need to put these women through a trial, which would cause even more emotional distress. I mean, personally, I find it disgusting, especially as an NCAA, or I guess former NCAA uh, college athlete myself, when you go to these schools, you're supposed to be welcomed into a family, you're supposed to be protected by athletic trainers, by coaches, by, by the, the, the university. As you go out there and you try to do your best, in a sport that you love to represent that school, it's it's maddening and sickening to hear that uh, young women in college have to go through this. I'm glad they got their civil court case resolved, and I look forward to seeing how the criminal case is resolved as well. Thank you both, and thank you for joining us here at Law and Crime Daily. We'll see you next time as we discuss justice in America. Straight ahead on Law and Crime Daily. Major witnesses called in the Derek Chauvin trial. The teen who filmed the now viral video described seeing George Floyd die. A man terrified, scared, begging for his life. Plus, an MMA fighter tears up while listening to the 911 call he placed that day. And the heated exchange between defense attorney and witness about his actions. Did you say that? Is that what you heard? I'm asking you, sir. Did you say that? On Crime Daily, covering court cases from coast to coast.
Welcome to Law and Crime Daily. I'm Dan Abrams filling in for Brian Buckmeyer, who is in Minneapolis for the trial of Derek Chauvin. And with us, as always, is Terry Austin. Brian, some more big testimony from the prosecution. What did they have? We're going to call this witness by her first name only because she just turned 18. Darnella, a minor who was 17 at the time, she took out her phone to film an officer with his knee on the neck of a black man on the street. She was emotional as she described the events on May 25th, 2020. She asked not to have her face shown, and the judge ruled not for it to be seen because she was a minor at the time. What did you do when you first got there and you see where you're standing? What did you do? I pulled out my phone. And what were you doing to pull out your phone? Recording, capturing what I was seeing. I heard George Floyd saying, I can't breathe, please get off of me. I can't breathe, please. He cried for his mom. He was in pain. It seemed like he knew. It seemed like he knew it was over for him. He was terrified. He was suffering. This was a cry for help. Before we talk more about what happened in court on day two, take us back and remind us where we are in this case, Brian. Dan, prosecutors say Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd by kneeling on his neck last year. But while Chauvin's lawyer says Floyd died from drug use and a combination of heart problems leading to his death. Derek Chauvin is facing three charges, second-degree murder, second-degree manslaughter, and third-degree murder. He faces up to 40 years in prison if convicted. 14 people make up the jury. 12 members plus two alternates will hear the case. Eight of those identify as white, four as black, and two as multiracial. During opening statements, prosecutors said Chauvin kneeled on Floyd's neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds. Find Mr. Chauvin guilty for his excessive use of force against George Floyd that was an assault that contributed to taking his life and for engaging in imminently dangerous behavior, putting a knee on the neck, the knee on the back, for 9 minutes and 29 seconds without regard for Mr. Floyd's life. Chauvin's defense says Floyd ingested pills containing fentanyl. They argued that the drugs, combined with a heart condition, are what led to Floyd's death. The evidence will show that Mr. Floyd died of a cardiac arrhythmia that occurred as a result of hypertension, coronary disease, the ingestion of methamphetamine and fentanyl, and the adrenaline throwing, flowing through his body, all of which acted to further compromise an already compromised heart. All right, Brian, you are there at the courthouse. What has been the initial response outside to the first couple of days of testimony in this trial? Yeah, Dan, yesterday there was a much more of a crowd right where I was, right where I'm standing now, actually, at the beginning of opening statements yesterday. George Floyd's family was here to take a knee with Reverend Al Sharpton as well as Attorney Benjamin Crump for that 8 minutes and 46 seconds of symbolic but also powerful display of how long they believe Derek Chauvin was on George Floyd's neck. We also saw protests after the court. You could hear them even from standing here just up the block. But today, a much quieter scene as testimony is rolling out in the court. So as Brian mentioned, prosecutors called a key witness, the then 17-year-old who filmed the incident on her cell phone that was seen around the world. Here's more of what she said, but this time on cross-examination by the defense. Remember, she was a minor at the time, uh, and her face is not going to be shown. 
understood more of what was happening there. You ultimately ended up posting your video to social media, right? Correct. And it went viral? Correct. And was that a surprise to you? Definitely. Changed your life, right? You're not objective, you're not exposed, correct? Oral. Yeah, changed your life. It has. Now, on redirect, the prosecutors asked Darnella how viewing what happened to George Floyd has impacted her life. When I look at George Floyd, I look at, I look at my dad, I look at my brother, I look at my cousin, my uncle, because they are all black. And I, I look at that and I look at how that could have been one of them. It's the night. I stayed up apologizing and apologizing to George Floyd for not doing more and not physically interacting and not saving his life. Like, it's not what I should have done. It's what he should have done. Powerful stuff there. Brian, I want to come back to the cross-examination for a moment. It does seem that the defense is really digging in on this notion that somehow uh, Derek Chauvin may have been distracted by all the yelling and the voices around him at that scene. Exactly, Dan. What the defense is really arguing is saying that if the crowd, I know there's a bit of a discrepancy, haven't heard much from the prosecution trying to color in a different way, but these witnesses are, who are taking the stand, they're part of that distraction. The defense is blaming uh, partly on why uh, George Floyd died. I'm not sure how well that's going to be played out for the jury, but it's definitely a part of his defense. And Terry Austin, I've said that I think that that's a dangerous um, argument for them to make. What do you make of it? It's a very dangerous argument. There's no question that the crowd had nothing to do with the death of George Floyd. They were simply doing the opposite, trying to save his life. They were saying, get off of his neck. They were trying to get a pulse. So the fact that they're trying to blame the crowd now is ironic, and I think it's going well, to hurt them because the witnesses have all testified, including Darnella. She testified that they weren't rowdy. They weren't unruly. They weren't in any way, shape, or form threatening any of the officers. They were simply trying at the time Save the life of George Floyd. But even if they were, the problem is, is that the legal defense? That, oh, yeah, yeah I forgot. I forgot to, to take my knee uh, off of his neck because I was distracted. It just seems to me that that's, it. again, even as a strictly legal matter, dangerous territory. All right, we're going to come back to both of you. Still ahead on Law and Crime Daily, a child takes the stand in the case against Derek Chauvin. But first... An MMA fighter's reaction to hearing his own 911 call placed after George Floyd's death. It's testimony you don't want to miss. Up next. He gets pretty 
point to kill this guy that wasn't resisting arrest. He had his knee on the dude's neck the whole time, Officer 987. The man went, uh, went, stopped breathing. That was a mixed martial arts expert and witness nearly brought to tears as he testified about the 911 call he had made about Derek Chauvin. Anjanette Levy is at the courthouse and has much, much more on what Donald Williams told the jury about a particular type of chokehold. Anjanette. Yeah, that's right, Dan. And Donald Williams says he actually started wrestling back in junior high school and has worked a number of private security jobs over the years. He told the jury what he saw that night last May and even sparred a little bit with the defense. He went to Cup Foods last May 25th to get something to drink, but stopped when he saw people standing near a police cruiser. As a fan, I just was really trying to keep my professionalism and, and make sure that I speak out for Floyd's um, life because I felt like he was in very much danger. Williams said he didn't feel he could intervene when he saw Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck. telling them they were killing Floyd. Williams told the jury he believed Chauvin was using a blood chokehold with a shimmy. What's the purpose of doing a shimmy? To close the gap of the air between your arm and the neck. No, like he just did it right there. You can see his foot is on there. His toe is pointing down, and you will see a small gesture in his back foot like this. And that's the pressure you push more down between Cross-examination, Eric Nelson questioned Williams about his credentials. Have you ever officially been asked to train police officers specifically in the use of chokehold? No. And he questioned Williams about his behavior. In that statement, you said, like, I really wanted to beat the f out of the police officers. You said that? Yeah, I did. That's what I felt. You called him a bum at least 13 times. That's what you counted in the video? I counted. And actually got 13. And that line of questioning was really designed by Eric Nelson to paint this picture that there was this crowd that was going to become unruly and was distracting Derek Chauvin and the other officers, and that was taking their attention away from George Floyd. The defense says that Chauvin was following his training with the hold that he used that night. Dan? And Jeanette, thank you. Um, Carrie Austin, how significant do you think it is that this eyewitness also has this background uh, as an MMA fighter? Meaning there was actually legal arguments uh, pre-trial about exactly what he'd be able to testify to in terms of his background and experience. Well, that's right, Dan. And I think the judge allowed quite a bit of testimony to come in. And he did have some training, obviously, in these chokeholds. And I thought it was very effective that the jury got a chance to hear what he thought about the difference between the blood choke and the difference between an air choke. And I thought that when Eric Nelson was cross-examining him, that he went a little bit too far. Now, maybe the witness shouldn't have gotten so upset, but I think it was very good that he stuck to what he was trying to say about how dangerous it was, what
Chauvin was doing at that point in time and how those little movements that shimmy made a big difference as far as, you know, the death of George Floyd is concerned. Yeah. And on redirect, the prosecutor asked Williams about whether uh, Officer Tao, who tried to de-escalate the situation, whether he did. And Anjanette, what was his response? Yeah, he said that Officer Tao basically did nothing and almost made the situation worse by some of the things that he said. Tao was quoted as saying, and you can hear it on the body camera, um, something to the effect of, well, that's just what, this is what drugs do to you. This is what happens when you do drugs. So um, the officers didn't do anything to de-escalate the situation in Donald Williams' mind. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, thank you. Everyone stands by. Coming up on Law and Crime Daily, a closer look at Derek Chauvin's police record. Plus, should the defense have cross-examined a nine-year-old on the witness stand? Our legal analysis coming up after the break. Derek Chauvin ordered a woman who apparently was not resisting to be, quote, hogtied. 
Chief Investigator Correspondent Brian Ross spoke to that woman's attorney, who says her case is not the only one. Things coming up this week on Brian Ross Investigates, an advanced look at who and what the jury in the Derek Chauvin trial may hear about the background and the record of the accused police officer. This is Zoya Code, one of two witnesses the prosecution wants to call to testify about how they were treated in previous incidents. Her lawyer, Zorislav Lederman, says it grew out of a domestic dispute. What can the Zoya Code testify to? Well, Mrs. Code um, had a similar encounter with Mr. Chauvin where um, he was taking her into custody um, and he treated her um, in a similar manner that he treated uh, Mr. Floyd. Uh, the, the, the issue there is this um, kneeing over the neck. Um, this is what the this is what the prosecution was looking for in terms of getting her testimony in, um, and I also believe that this is what the judge looked at as well in determining that her testimony will be allowed. Um, is the the specific um, the specific use of force and how it was carried out, and the similarities between her incident. Uh, and Mr. Floyd in terms of how Officer Chauvin used force. And how seriously, if at all, was she injured in the encounter? Anytime you have a police officer who um, is on top of you, um, you're being restrained, um, they're, they're applying pressure to your neck. Um, anybody who's being arrested is already under stress. Um, it's not a very pleasant situation to be in. Um, I prefer not to go into detail just because she's excited to testify at trial and I don't want to create any other issues, well, similar that we saw with the settlement, I don't want to have a, a problem come up in, in the trial where I tell you something that may end up causing more questions with the jury. So I prefer to leave that as is, but, but if she does testify, she will tell her story and you'll, you'll be able to see what happens. And you expect it to be impactful? I, I think it will be, yes. And what is she like? She's a, you know, a regular person, just like many other people that are often abused by the police. Mr. Floyd was not the first person to die at the hands of Minneapolis police, and he will not be the last, unfortunately. The city has, as we heard in the news, has settled his case with the family, which, which I believe is appropriate. But the question is, is the, is the culture of abuse within the Minneapolis Police Department going to stop? And I haven't seen evidence of that, you know, given Mr. Floyd's case and given prior recent cases we've had here. I don't see any evidence of the police department changing substantially in a way that it treats the public. That's coming up this week on Brian Ross Investigates on the Law and Crime Trial Network. Brian Ross, thank you. Brian Buckmeyer, there was a big legal battle over whether that testimony could come in, uh, and in the end, the judge said that he'd allow it. Absolutely, Dan. We're going to hear that testimony as well. I believe another testimony from another instance of Derek Chauvin. They, the prosecution tried to get, I think, nine in total, but the judge ruled that based on the facts, only these two would come in because they're more similarly situated to the, to the situation that happened with George Floyd. Terry, I think sometimes people underestimate how significant past act testimony can be in a trial like this. Well, that's right, and I'm glad that they were able to get these prior bad acts in. And the two acts that did come in on the prosecution's request was this 2017 act that we're referring to, where Chauvin again kneeled on someone who wasn't resisting. And they offered it to prove that Chauvin was using unreasonable force and that he intended to assault Floyd. You know, the other issue was 
the 2015 incident where he didn't use deadly force, where he knew and where he understood what the procedure was. And the judge said that he was letting that in because it showed that Chauvin knew, understand, and he wasn't making a mistake when he applied the force that he did in that incident. So I think the two incidents that he let in obviously were within the bounds of the law in Minnesota and the federal rules of, you know, 404. And so I think it all worked out. And remember, though, that there will also be some information coming in about George Floyd's past as well. So the judge really had to sort of balance this. Prosecutors wanted a lot of Derek Chauvin's past in. Defense wanted a lot of George Floyd's. He let in a little bit of it on each side. All right. Terry and Brian, thank you so much. Brian, keep up the great work out there. Thank you for joining us here on Law & Crime Daily. See you next time. I'm Dan Abrams. Thanks for watching.
is how long that went on for half of that time. Uh, Mr. Floyd was unconscious, restless, pulsing. And you'll be able to see the uncontrollable shaking he's doing when he's not breathing anymore, the anoxic seizure from oxygen deprivation. You'll be able to see when he's going through agonal breathing, the involuntary gasping of the body once the heart has stopped from oxygen deficiency. We're going to ask at the end of this case that you find Mr. Chauvin guilty for his excessive use of force against George Floyd that was an assault that contributed to taking his life and for engaging in imminently dangerous behavior, putting the knee on the neck, the knee on the back for nine minutes and 29 seconds without regard for Mr. Floyd's life. Law and Crimes' Anjanette Levy is here to break down the defense's version of events. Jesse, the defense is arguing that George Floyd's death was not a murder. Therefore, Derek Chauvin, in their words, didn't commit a crime. A reasonable doubt is a doubt that is based on reason and common sense. Derek Chauvin's defense attorney told jurors why they will find out in the state's case. Eric Nelson said despite the hundreds of witnesses interviewed by state agents, the evidence comes from four places. Cup Foods, Mercedes-Benz, Squad 320, and Hennepin County Medical Center. A Cup Foods clerk called 911 reporting a man who appeared to be drunk bought cigarettes with a counterfeit $20 bill and twice refused to return them. Police found George Floyd in the driver's seat of the Mercedes-Benz, which Nelson said had pills containing fentanyl and methamphetamine. Floyd's friends, Shawanda Hill and Maury Paul, were in that SUV. Mr. Floyd's friends will explain that Mr. Floyd fell asleep in the car and that they couldn't wake him up, that they kept trying to wake him up to get going, that they thought the police might be coming because now the store was coming out. Nelson says Floyd consumed pills to hide them, and two containing Floyd's DNA were found months later in Squad 320. Nelson says the officers struggled with Floyd in that vehicle, leading to the infamous video of Chauvin kneeling on Floyd's neck. You will see that three Minneapolis police officers could not overcome the strength of Mr. Floyd. Mr. Chauvin stands 5'9", 140 pounds. Mr. Floyd is 6'3", weighs 223 pounds. Nelson says Chauvin followed his training and did not cause George Floyd to die. The evidence will show that Mr. Floyd died of a cardiac arrhythmia that occurred as a result of hypertension, coronary disease, the ingestion of methamphetamine and fentanyl, and the adrenaline flowing, flowing through his body, all of which acted to further compromise and already compromised heart. The defense opening just lasted about 24 minutes. There was no mention of that 2019 arrest video of George Floyd that Judge Cahill is allowing the defense to show portions of to the jury. So really a low-key opening statement from the defense. Jesse? All right, thanks, Anjanette. Let's get into this right now because, Brian, I want to start. One of the things that came out was the difference between cause of death and manner of death. How did the state and the defense handle that? So cause of death is basically an explanation of what occurred. Uh, cause of death could be a bullet to the head, a, a punch to the heart, and your heart stops beating. Uh, manner of death, there's a very limited number of manners of death. Homicide, accident, natural, suicide, or undetermined. Now, when you put the conclusion of homicide, you're meaning that that person's death, regardless of what or if happened, mm -hmm. was done by another. 
Now, the prosecution addressed both, the cause of death and the manner of death. The defense only addressed one and didn't address the manner of death, which I think is the hardest hurdle for them in this case. And Terry, speaking of the defense, they almost seem to suggest that Chauvin and the officers were distracted by the crowd that was gathering and becoming more hostile. What were your thoughts on that? You know, I think up until that point, Eric Nelson did a really nice job. I mean, what could he say? And he said what he could say. He said it's more than the 929 seconds. It's more than just 50,000 base stamps and 400 witnesses. And he did try to say that the cause of death had to do with his poor heart condition and with drugs. But when he got to the point where he was talking about the crowd and the growing bystanders, that that was a distraction from the care of Derek, you know, of uh, George Floyd, that really, really made me blister. I thought to myself, how could he possibly say that? And I really do think that the jury is not going to like that either. And Angela, let's talk about the cause of death, because the cause of death is going to be disputed in this trial, and it appears that the county medical examiner, typically a prosecution, prosecution witness, might actually benefit the defense. Yeah, and I think that the defense is really going to seize on some of the things that Dr. Andrew Baker, the medical examiner of Hennepin County, told the investigators in the beginning of this case. There are some case notes in which he told them that if George Floyd had died at home, he would have classified his death as a fentanyl overdose, a drug overdose. So I really think that they're going to seize on some of what he said and talk with him about that in his testimony and he eric nelson in his opening also mentioned that the state basically went shopping for other experts to support their version of events that this was caused by the police officers the cause of death is so critical in this case and everybody's waiting for mr baker to take the stand and explain his rationale both on the prosecution and the defense's side so it's definitely going to be something that we're going to watch now still ahead on law and crime daily George Floyd's family taking a stand by taking a knee. You're going to hear what they want out of this trial. But first, inside the courtroom and a look at the first witness called in the Derek Chauvin trial. What she saw the day of George Floyd's death. Next. First witness called in the Derek Chauvin trial was the 911 dispatcher who watched the cop kneeling on George Floyd's neck through the city's security footage system. Now she alerted her supervisor to what she was seeing. I didn't know. You can call me a snitch if you want to, but we have the cameras up for 320's call. Well, did they already put him in the... They must have already started moving him. Um, and 320 over at Cup Foods. Okay. Um... I don't know if they had use force or not. They got something out of the back of the squad, and all of them sat on this man. So I don't know if they needed to or not, but they haven't said anything to me yet. Yeah, they haven't said anything. This is just a takedown, which doesn't count, but... Okay. I'll find out. No problem. We don't get to ever see it, so when we see it, we're just like, well... Uh, well. You use the term snitch. Yes. What did you mean by that? At that moment, it was a word that just came out of my mouth, but it's out of the scope of my duties to call a sergeant if there was any use of force. And so that's what the purpose, well, tell me, what was the purpose of making that call to him and giving him that information? Voicing my concerns. Um, like I said, we don't see incidents. My job is mainly all listening. Now, in cross.
House Defense Attorney Eric Nelson pressed Scurry on how much she was actually watching the video. You were still watching the rest of your work, right? Correct. I was actively still working. So you look up for a couple seconds, look down, do your work, look up, look down from time to time throughout the course of this incident. You're correct. All right. And so it's fair to say that your attention wasn't necessarily focused directly on the cameras and what you were seeing. Correct. And you, but it was concerning enough to you what you did see that you called Sergeant Pluger of the Minneapolis Police Department 3rd Precinct, right? I was concerned, yes, because of the time of the length of the incident had not changed. Well, let's get into that. Brian, there was some extensive cross-examination by the defense of his dispatcher. Where exactly was Nelson headed there? So I don't, it wasn't very apparent on its face. I think he might be using more information uh, down the road of summation, but I think he was trying to show that she was distracted, that she maybe wasn't focusing as clearly as she was testifying to. But I think on the rebuttal by the prosecution, the thing that I liked is that they pointed out this woman has had six years of experience to that date of when uh, Derek Chauvin put his knee upon George's neck. And she has the ability to focus on multiple things. Just like Jesse, you have the ability to speak with me and hear our producers and hear the audio and hear everyone in your background, but still do a great job, just like this woman did. Well, compliments are always well taken. Thank you, Brian, for that. But I'll tell you what was interesting, Terry, because she made a comment that, you know, her feed looked frozen. I thought that was very powerful, giving an idea of what she was looking at. And then everybody was wondering, why did the state call the dispatcher as the first witness? Why do you think that is? You know, I think it was a powerful statement, and I think it was a testament as to just how long Chauvin's knee was on Floyd's neck. And I think he called the 911 dispatcher first because he wanted to show that the behavior of the officer was so unusual, and she felt the need to call the sergeant, and she had not done that before. And this is the commanding officer, so I think she said her intuition told her something was wrong and she wanted someone else to know about it. And one of the things that bothered me about the response was I thought the sergeant was very cavalier about what she was saying and I wasn't quite sure whether he was going to do anything about it. I think it's interesting to look at it now back then and thinking maybe this one comment that she's making little does she know what she's really looking at and where it's going to lead a year later. So it's pretty incredible to hear that that dispatch officer speaking with their supervisor. All right, coming up on Law and Crime Daily, Twin City residents are calling for justice in the name of George Floyd. We're going to show you how some residents are taking peaceful action as Derek Chauvin's trial begins. Plus, George Floyd's family is speaking out. We're going to tell you what Floyd's brother and nephew had to say. Chauvin trial, people gathered in support of the George Floyd family. Brian Buckmeyer was there for us and explains what he saw. Brian? Jesse, people gathered at a church in Minneapolis on Sunday. There was a call for action and justice. Prayers and support for the family of George Floyd filled the Greater Friendship Missionary Church. service organized by the National Action Network, founded by Reverend Al Sharpton. Because this family will go through 
attended, offering emotional support for anyone needing it after watching the video of Floyd's death. Is America prepared to hold police accountable and make them pay when they are wrong? Attorney Benjamin Crump represents the Floyd family. He says they should be entitled to criminal justice even after the $27 million settlement with the city of Minneapolis. That many people have said, Reverend Al, if the family gets a civil justice, then they can't get criminal justice. Well, I don't know where that is written at, that black people in America can't get whole justice, that we can only get partial justice. Trump pushing back against what he called Chauvin's defense attempt to smear George Floyd's name by saying he was overdosed on fentanyl. What killed George Floyd was a overdose of excessive force. Yeah. In terms of not only the conviction, but also potentially a sentence, uh, if and when Chauvin's found guilty. I think that uh, we do not want to handicap the attorney general at all by him putting a bomb in public. Because we have clearly told him in private, we hope, uh, and when we say we are talking about the family, but I don't think it's fair to give the defense that uh, the opportunity to say that there's some kind of situation that they could use against him at trial. And then I want to say this. Attorney Keith Ellison and his team of prosecutors have worked with the family uh, throughout this whole journey, and we expect them to zealously prosecute this case, and we expect them to do what is appropriate. When we come back, our exclusive interview with the organization paying for Chauvin's defense, the support on the other side of the courtroom. Stay with us. organization in Minnesota is paying for Derek Chauvin's defense. And Jeanette Levy spoke exclusively with the head of the organization about the support Derek Chauvin is receiving. And Jeanette? Jesse, you certainly don't see crowds of people showing up at the courthouse in Minneapolis to support Derek Chauvin, but there is support for him. You can see it online on social media. And according to Brian Peters, the head of the Minnesota Police and Peace Officers Association, people have actually called and tried to donate to his, to his defense. There's some people that feel strongly that Derek Chauvin is, is being used um, uh, by organizations as a reason for whether it's bringing police reform or what have you, or exposing, you know, systematical racism. Um, anyway, that has led to a lot of people contacting our office and taking donations. And frankly, um, the reason why we didn't accept any donations is I, I don't know where, where the donations are coming from. Peter says they don't have the time to back the sources of these donations. He said they more than likely went to another organization or organizations that take care of living expenses for officers who may be experiencing trouble. Jesse? All right. Thanks, Anjanette. George Floyd's family took a strong stance in front of the courthouse by kneeling on the ground for the same amount of time that Chauvin kneeled on Floyd's neck. We came here for one thing and one thing only. We came to get justice, mm. and nothing less. Mm. We came to get justice. So either 
they wasn't trained and qualified to do their job, or they intended on taking his life. Either way, we need justice. We're taking a knee for eight minutes and 46 seconds, and we want you to think up during that time why Shaven didn't in that time get his knee up. Now, Brian, there's going to be a lot of activity, we imagine, outside of that courthouse. And do you anticipate that what happens on the outside is going to have an effect on what's happening inside the courtroom? And how could Judge Cahill prevent that from affecting the trial? I mean, Jesse, I, I don't know how he is going to prevent it. I think that you're going to see not only outside the courthouse. Uh, there, we're right now on the southeast corner on the direct diagonal of us. There are people who are lightly protesting. I would say maybe 40 people or so stepping onto the streets, causing traffic to move around. Also, there's a protest earlier this morning near the entranceway of where jurors and other people are ushered into the building. And so they're going to see that. They're going to hear that on the news. How Judge Cahill is going to stop them from doing that and hearing that, I'm not sure, except for admonishing them not to listen to the news and other sources. Fingers crossed that they actually, you know, listen and are able to do that. But by all accounts, you're hoping they will. Uh, and Jeanette... It's interesting because the organization that's paying for the officer's defense, they see the case in a different light, don't they? I mean, can you exp expand upon that? Yeah, I, they see it in a much different light, Jesse. I think that in talking to Brian Peters, he's very circumspect given the warnings that Judge Cahill has given about these comments outside of the courtroom. But he did say they feel strongly in the case. He believes there are facts about police training and how much force officers can use that will benefit Derek Chauvin along with information that's in the medical examiner's report. Terry, we heard attorney Ben Crump, uh, who represents George Floyd's family, say that he refutes the idea that this is a hard case. Do you agree with him? You know what, Jesse, I understand completely why Ben Crump would say that this is not a difficult case. There's a video, and it shows Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's you know, neck and refusing to remove his knee. The prosecutor actually said that Chauvin does not let up, he does not get up, even after there's no pulse and even after the ambulance came. He waited until the medical people said to him to get up. So... You know, the job of the defense is to make this a little bit more complicated. And what they're trying to say is that the cause of death had nothing to do with the knee, that it was the drugs in his system or his heart. But what Ben Crump and the family are trying to say is, look, if you look at this from a humanitarian point of view, there's no question George Floyd did not have to die that day. He died because of the fact that that knee was on his neck. What's interesting is you're hearing Nelson saying that it's not only the drugs, it's not only the under, underlying health conditions, but it's also the adrenaline as well that culminated at that moment. It's going to be an interesting back and forth between both sides. And anyway, thanks for joining us here on Long Crime Daily. We're going to see you next time as we discuss justice in America.
on Grime Daily. Preparations are underway for the Derek Chauvin trial. Our exclusive interview with the organization funding his defense. We feel strong in the case. Plus, the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives calling for reform and new legislation. You have to acknowledge a problem. The accused killer of rapper Nipsey Hussle is asking for a bail reduction. Is Eric Holder a danger to the community? And the billion dollars in settlements one university will pay out to sex assault victims of a former campus gynecologist. Law and Crime Daily covering court cases from coast to coast. Welcome everyone to Law and Crime Daily. I'm Brian Buckmeyer along with Terry Austin and Anjanette Levy. We begin with team coverage of the Derek Chauvin trial. Anjanette leads us off with an exclusive interview with the man who heads the organization that's paying for Chauvin's defense. And Brian, the Minnesota Police and Peace Officers Association lobbies for pro-law enforcement legislation in the state. And the group also has a legal defense fund for its members. I spoke with the executive director about a number of issues, including Minnesota's attorney general and what he believes are the strengths in Chauvin's case. This is such a, a very important case and the world is watching. Brian Peters has led the MPPOA since 2019. Nothing could have prepared Peters for what happened on May 25, 2020, when a video of George Floyd's arrest recorded by a teenage girl went viral. You asked me earlier what I thought of the video when I first saw it. It was hard, it was hard to watch. But Peters says his opinion on that video started to change after he watched the police body camera video that showed the beginning of the encounter with George Floyd. Evidence uh, wasn't released right away. And when I started looking at the evidence, also being able to watch all of the body camera video, um, things started to change. And being experienced in law enforcement, not everything is what it, what it seems to be just from one aspect of a video. Peters won't comment on the officer's actions that day, but he believes the body camera video, the medical examiner's report, and the officer's training all helped their cases. He questions why Attorney General Keith Ellison didn't want the body camera released in the beginning. I sat on a working group called uh, Deadly, how to, how to Reduce Deadly Force Encounters, and this was led by our, our Attorney General and our Commissioner of Public Safety. We met for nine months, and this is pre-George Floyd. Our Attorney General spoke of needing transparency in these cases, meaning release of body camera video as soon as possible, making sure that these investigations don't take years, you know, to go from investigation to conclusion at court. Peters also questions why Ellison wanted to keep cameras out of the courtroom. We want to make sure that the facts are the facts and people can make up their own decision themselves instead of relying on whether it's a media report or a statement from the attorney general. People are going to be, be able to see the facts firsthand. The stakes couldn't be higher and the meaning of justice couldn't be more different for the Floyd family and Derek Chauvin. Only a murder conviction will mean justice for the Floyds. For Derek Chauvin, it's an acquittal. Lawyer Eric Nelson is defending Chauvin. He's one of 12 lawyers the MPPOA has vetted to defend officers. Three other lawyers are defending Thomas Lane, Alexander King, and Tu Tao. Even though each attorney representing the individual has different um, parts within the case, uh, it does all come together that, of course, all four attorneys are working very hard with each other. We feel strong in the case. 
I think if the attorney general's office felt the same, I don't understand why they need as many attorneys on this case as, as they do. So do you think that there is any room for reform within the Minneapolis Police Department? Absolutely. I think there's there's room for reform um, across the United States. But as I stated earlier, there's also a lot of room for reform at our legislative uh, bodies, whether it's at the state or federal level, uh, really working on some of these um, decade-long problems that nobody seems to be able to fix. Peter said those problems include drug abuse, inequities in education, and poverty. He didn't want to comment on specific aspects of the case right now because of Judge Cahill's warnings, and you saw how upset he got over the last week or so with the city of Minneapolis and the comments city officials have been making there. Brian? Thanks, Anjanette. Many in law enforcement disagree with Chauvin's actions that day. Terry Austin has more on the head of a national organization who is looking to see accountability. Brian, I spoke with Linda Williams, the president of the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. She says the incident inspired her organization to call for legislation mandating intervention by officers when they see another officer using excessive force. In 30 years of being a special agent with the United States Secret Service, I, and I was very good, never put anybody on the ground, <laughs> never laid on anybody's neck, even when there was an arrest that was effective. It was done properly and humane because law enforcement is that entity in society that has been given that ultimate that ultimate authority to use death as an you know as a final uh, you know resolution. It does not come to that. We have to be accountable for the training and those people that lack or do not do that, they have to be held accountable. And I know it's simple, but it's just a mom and just to hear a man cry for his mother. But the fact is you have them under control, so why are you still at that point utilizing excessive force? We have to care. Yeah. Everybody have to reimagine law enforcement. We have the public safety is more than a gun and a badge. It's us taking pride and uh, you know reinvesting into our community, and that's a holistic approach. Thanks, Terry. Let's bring in criminal defense attorney Bernarda Violona on this as well. Bernarda, what did you make of the comments there in Terry's interview, where you have a, I mean, how do you get better experience in special forces of the United States of America in talking about when force should or shouldn't be used and when it's excessive? This conversation is a conversation that we have been having for years. We have been having this same conversation for over 10, 20, 30 years, and it still has remained the same. Changes only come little by little. At some point, come on, you're going to keep on having situations like that of George Floyd who died. These are situations that we hear all around the country. At some point, this has to stop. How do we get there? Is it by suing people and getting money by the city? Is it by taking away qualified immunity? Is it by the criminal cases? Something has to give. Agreed. Terry, what did you make of Brian Peters' measures response on the case of, of Derek Chauvin? Well, you know, Peters is probably being very careful for a couple of reasons. First, he knows that the world is watching, and he probably wants to make sure that he's being fair and that he's being impartial, even though, obviously, he has one point of view. And second, he knows Judge Cahill has already cautioned all the parties to limit their comments, and even as it applies to the press, not just to his party. So I think he's being very careful, and he's being neutral, if he can be. 
Uh, Anjanette, Brian Peter Peters seems to be pretty critical of the Attorney General, Keith Ellison. I think there's no love lost between the two of them. Yeah, I mean, it kind of sounds like that, but in really having, we had a really long conversation, Brian, about 35 or 40 minutes, and he said he simply just has a lot of questions for the Attorney General. As you heard him say, they worked on that panel together to reduce use of force incidents. They had worked on some possible reforms that they recommended to the state legislature up there in Minnesota. And then the Floyd case happened and everything kind of fell apart. So he said even today he would still sit down and talk with the attorney general. He just has a lot of questions regarding his handling of this particular case. Of course, the concept of reform will be hanging over this trial as it begins uh, in the coming days. Still ahead on Law and Crime Daily, the suspect accused of killing Grammy winner rapper Nipsey Hussle wants out of jail. But first, the shocking evidence the jury in the George Floyd resisting arrest. Hmm. Welcome back. Opening statements in the Derek Chauvin murder trial are scheduled to start on Monday. Law and Crimes Kim Johnson is in Minneapolis and explains what evidence is expected to come in. Brian, when the trial gets underway next week, the jury will be allowed to hear about Derek Chauvin's previous police action. In one previous arrest, Chauvin received a life-saving award for placing a handcuffed man on his side, an action which hospital staff later told him saved the man's life. This week, Judge Peter Cahill ruled that the incident was important because it showed Chauvin's knowledge reasonable force in a similar incident to what George Floyd experienced in May 2020. The jury will also hear about another arrest in 2017 when Chauvin placed a woman in a hog tie even though she was not resisting arrest. As evidence is presented in court next week, family and friends of George Floyd are hoping for a guilty verdict. I hope that the police officer do some jail time because um, when you look at the video, everybody telling him he can't breathe, he's, you know, he's saying he need help. The officer continued to put his knee in his neck. Uh, I feel the time he told him he was claustrophobia and he couldn't breathe, they should have set him on the curb, called for paramedics. Now, George Floyd's friend tells me that uh, he thinks the racial makeup of the jury, which includes six people of color, is fair, and he says that he hopes justice is served. Brian. Thanks, Kim. Here to break down the judge's ruling and the makeup of the jury is criminal defense attorney Bernardo Villalona and Terry Austin. Terry, do you agree with Floyd's friend? Does the racial makeup of the jury appear fair to you? I do agree. I think that it's not only racially diverse, but you have nine women, six men. And the fact that you do have six of the 15 jurors who are from diverse backgrounds. I also think it's important that they have different professions. So you have someone who is an auditor. You have someone who is a chemist. You have a single mom. Those types of perspectives will be important when they're doing deliberations. You're going to want to hear everyone's opinion. So I think that diversity is excellent. And I think they did a good job, frankly, of picking people who will at least try to be fair. Bernardo, what do you make of the judge's ruling to include prior acts by Chauvin? So I'm not surprised at the judge's ruling. Remember that the prosecution in this case actually was seeking to put in eight of Chauvin's prior bad acts into evidence. 
and what the judge decided, which was a fair decision, that only two of those acts are going to be allowed in front of the jury because those two acts go to knowledge and intent. Specifically, the act where a man was tasered and he was rolled to his side because when he was in the hospital, the people at the hospital had stated, had he still been facing the ground for any much longer that he would have died. So that goes to show you knowledge on the part of Chauvin. He was aware that having Floyd down, face down, with his knee on his neck, could cause death. I mean, it's called a recovery position for a reason. Of course, if this testimony comes in, it's going to be very damaging for the defense. Be sure to tune in to the Law and Crime Network for gavel-to-gavel coverage of the Derek Chauvin murder trial and the death of George Floyd. For more on what's going on at the Law and Crime Network, let's hand it over to Jesse Weber, host of the show, Prime Crime. Yeah, hey there, Brian. Tonight we discuss Sean Great. This is the serial killer who lured women in and then murdered them. We're going to start with the harrowing 911 call of a woman who was able to escape and then dive into the twisted confessions of Great that are really something else. So I'm just going to tell you, I just feel like this, you know me. interviews that helped to tell this chilling story. Tune in to Law and Crime. Thanks, Jesse. Coming up on Law and Crime Daily, $1.1 billion, a record settlement for the hundreds of women who accused a USC gynecologist of decades of sexual abuse. Plus, the accused killer of rapper Nipsey Hussle is back in court. His legal arguments to reduce bail, the latest in the case, next. about Hustle accusing Holder of snitching. Holder left, but prosecutors say he returned, shooting multiple rounds into Hustle's head and torso. Holder pled not guilty to one count of murder, two counts of attempted murder, and weapons charges. Now, his attorneys say he's not a flight risk and deserves a lower bond. How about the uh, discovery matters? Well, uh, Ms. Young and I are going to meet and confer uh, with the investigating officer over these items, and so I would think by the time we come back on the 6th, we will have this settled. If not, I think uh, we can either discuss what is unsettled at that time, or maybe... Well, it's unsettled, are you going to file something in response to, to her uh, motion, or...? Yes, I'll do that. Okay. Back with us is criminal defense attorney Bernardo Villalona and co-host Terry Austin. Terry, $6.5 million is high, but that's better than the remand we typically see in homicide cases, right? Yes, it is. But you know what, Brian? I think he should have been remanded to jail. This was a blatant and bold killing of someone who was held in extreme high regard for the community. And we know that Holder had a criminal conviction, and that was for carrying a concealed firearm. And the fact that he came back after an argument, was shooting with two different guns and two different hands, 
I think that that was just such a heinous crime. And frankly, I think the judge could have easily remanded him. So I'm hoping that his bail stays at a very high mark. As you know, strength of the case is a factor that most courts typically consider for bail. But is there a strong argument to have bond reduced here? There's no reason to reduce the bond in this case. There has not been a change in circumstances. He is awaiting trial. So it's not like any of the counts have been dismissed. So when it comes to California and setting bail, there's a computation system that they use. It's one million off the top, just if you're facing life, if you were to convicted, be convicted of the sentence. It's another additional one million dollars if you are the shooter. It's another one million dollars if you have, depending on your prior record. So it is the best computation that you use, even though bail is only supposed to be to assure the return to court. But also you got to think about the public safety. Yeah, it is, a, of course, a factor that they put in. And thank you for that, Bernardo, for showing us how that calculus breaks down. I would agree. With no change of circumstances, I don't see his bail reducing unless something in his case drastically changed. But, of course, we'll keep eyes on that case. Thank you both. When we come back, how did the alleged Boulder store shooter obtain the weapon that left 10 dead? The new facts we are learning about Ahmad Alisa. shooting case as we learned the suspect passed a background check and legally purchased the alleged murder weapon just six days before the deadly rampage. Amon Elisa is facing 10 counts of murder and one count of attempted murder. Prosecutors say they plan to file more attempted murder charges after 10 people were killed at the King Superstore. According to police, one officer fired at the suspect. That officer is now on paid administrative leave. Officials say law enforcement's response saved additional lives. The officer, an 11-year Boulder Police Department veteran, was not injured during this incident. <clears throat> the firearm used by the suspect in King Supers on March 22nd is a semi-automatic Ruger AR-556 pistol. It was legally purchased in a gun store in Arvada, Colorado. The defendant was also in possession of a 9mm handgun, but at this time we do not believe that gun was used in this incident. The University of Southern California will pay out more than a billion dollars to sexual assault victims of a former campus gynecologist. Ex-Dr. George Tyndall worked at the USC Student Health Clinic from 1989 until 2016. That's when allegations he had been abusing students and taking photos of their genitals without their knowledge were made public in an L.A. Times investigation. He has pled not guilty to 29 felony charges and is awaiting trial. Those settlements cover more than 700 plaintiffs. It's the largest sex abuse payout in higher education history. I mean, Bernardo, some of the details here are astounding. $1.1 billion settlement over three multiple settlements. Scandal after scandal. The university officials calling it, quote, the end of a painful and ugly chapter in the history of the university. What are your thoughts on the settlement? So, of course, the amount itself shows you that there was culpability on the side of the college. But I will tell you this. The problem is, is that the college was well aware of this doctor's act since the 90s. And it wasn't until 2016 that they decided to take action against this doctor and have him removed. So, for the college to have failed those ladies, I think it's the right settlement. If not, they should actually get more. Because the reality is that they will never forget what they went through. 
Absolutely. Hundreds of victims, as you said earlier, most the most uh, recent settlement, because I said there's more than one, women will see payouts from a quarter million dollars to several million. Tara, how do you think uh, that the breakdown of these settlements are working out in favor of these women? Well, you know, I think the large amounts are worth it because the amount of physical and emotional distress that they went through, considering the fact these are students. You know, I taught out at USC after Dr. Tyndale was there, but during the class action. And I heard students talking about the ramifications of what he did when he was at the school. So it might sound like an astronomical figure, but I think it is, as Bernardo says, somewhat of an admission that the university failed to protect these students. When you have your child go off to school, the last thing you think about is the fact that they might be abused by someone at the school. So I think it's the right amount, and I think it's a great thing that the school is settling because they're acknowledging that they don't need to put these women through a trial, which would cause even more emotional distress. I mean, personally, I find it disgusting, especially as an NCAA or, I guess, former NCAA uh, college athlete myself. When you go to these schools, you're supposed to be welcomed into a family. You're supposed to be protected by athletic trainers, by coaches, by, by the, the university. As you go out there and you try to do your best in a sport that you love to represent that school, it's, it's maddening and sickening to hear that uh, young women in college had to go through this. I'm glad they got their civil court case resolved, and I look forward to seeing how the criminal case is resolved as well. Thank you both, and thank you for joining us here at Law & Crime Daily. We'll see you next time as we discuss justice 